So we are continuing today in, in the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 17. And uh, so I think rather than any kind of uh, witty introduction, let's just stand for the reading of God's word. So we're in Luke 17, beginning in verse 20 to the end of that chapter. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things, and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the rooftop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So it's important to kind of dissect or at least separate the things that Jesus is talking about and it's easy because you can separate them by the audience to whom he's speaking. So first question comes from the Pharisees and they want to know when is the kingdom of God going to come and what's that going to look like? Uh, there's a, and, and so Jesus answers their question but then in answering their question it, it 
triggers in his mind some things he would like to talk to his disciples about. Not about the coming of the kingdom, but about the coming of the Son of Man, specifically his second coming when he returns to earth. Because the coming of the kingdom comes, uh, as we uh, in sort of reformed circles talk about, it comes in this already not yet way. So like the kingdom comes with Christ's birth and the kingdom has come. And, and he says like that comes without much fanfare at all. Without, there's no signs. It's a pretty quiet thing. A baby born to a young woman, not even in a house, but in a manger, like it was, it was quiet. Now there were angels, there was fanfare, there were announcements, but in the scheme of things, in the world's eyes, it was a pretty quiet thing. And Jesus addresses that, but then he goes on to talk about, but what about the consummation of that kingdom? What about what we thought was all going to happen at the first coming of Christ. When is that going to happen? And he kind of warns about two different uh, ways of approaching the kingdom of God or even the coming of Jesus. One is to approach it in a stargazer's sort of way, you know, constantly looking for all the signs and you've got the charts and you've got your calendar and, and you've got it all figured out. And first you were going to use the Mayan calendar, then you realized there was more on the back and so you can't use that one. And so, uh, But you've got everything figured out. You've done the Bible studies. You've watched the movies and read the books and you have figured out when Jesus is coming back. These are the stargazers. But then there's also the navel gazers. And it could be that you're more of a navel gazer when it comes to the return of Jesus. It's just sort of a no big deal, and it's probably not going to happen anyway. First, he approaches the stargazers with the, the Pharisees as they're looking for the kingdom of God, because what they were looking for wasn't just a Messiah to come and save them from their sins. In fact, they're not looking for that at all. What they're looking for is a king who will come and restore power, a king who will come in victory over their oppressors, a king who will come and put down the Roman outsiders, the evil empire, and reinstate Israel as a world power again, as they were under David and Solomon's reign. The, the nations flocked to Israel to see how they could be more like them. They're looking for a king who will pass out the, the red hats, Maya or Miga, Miga, yeah, Miga, make Israel great again. That's what they're looking for. Someone who, who understands our plea and our plight and who's going to come in and just wreak havoc on those bad people out there. And Jesus says, listen, the, the kingdom's not coming that way. The kingdom is, is not coming in a way that someone can say to you, look here. No, look there. In fact, he says, the reality is the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, what is he saying to them? Is he saying, uh, the kingdom of God is, is all around. It's in the rocks. It's in the trees. It's like the force 
You know, it's the rocks have it, the trees have it, you have it, he has it. It's everywhere. The kingdom of God is in your midst. You just have to connect to it better. Or maybe he's saying like to them specifically, the kingdom of God is in you. You just, the, you have to find that seed of the kingdom. It's in your midst and just, and work and plant and water and nurture that seed until it grows into a beautiful butterfly. It seems like it's pretty simple what he's saying. I mean, if he were to speak as sarcastically or cynically as I do, he would have said, the kingdom of God is like literally in your midst. Like, I am the kingdom of God. Like, the kingdom of God is here. He's already preached that way. Specifically, he says, repent, the kingdom of God is here. Uh, John the Baptist preached it. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is here. It has come. Yours is not to worry or wonder when is all the powerful stuff coming, but here is the kingdom. How will you respond? The kingdom of God is right here today. As Jesus told us that whenever two or three are gathered in his name, he is there. We are here in the kingdom of God right now. We don't have to look for it. Christ has ushered in his kingdom through his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. The kingdom of God is here. His disciples were beginning to understand that at some level. They weren't understanding the full uh, crucifixion and resurrection, but they understood that Jesus had brought in the kingdom. That's not the concern he has for them. His concern for them, he turns and he begins to speak to his disciples about another way that we can be caught up in stargazing. He said, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Don't go out. Don't follow them. Now he changes the subject to the second coming, to when the Son of Man is going to come again. It could be that he's saying there's going to be days where you're going to long for better days in the past. You're going to wish that one of the days of the Son of Man were still here. Or he could be saying, there are going to be days when you will long for better days in the future. You will long for just one day, the day that Christ comes back. And you will long for this so much, you will be tempted to listen to false teachers. Now, what what could cause someone to long so much for better days in the past or better days in the future so much that they could even be drawn into false teaching? I think we know what could do that. I mean, the only reason you long for different days is the hardship of today, the suffering, the trials, persecutions, disappointments, losses, pain, illness, all of these things 
Who here can't say that they haven't had days in their lives where they've longed for a day from the past to come back or for a day from the future to arrive? Jesus says, don't don't do that. Don't be taken in by people who are saying, look here or look there. There are folks and perhaps some of us, some of you perhaps, who who can be very caught up in the stargazing side of waiting for the Lord's return. Of wanting those charts and wanting the, the date. In the 1800s, William Miller predicted to his congregation, prophesied to them actually, that March 21st, Jesus is coming back. And then after March 21st, did some recalculating and realized, oh, I'm sorry, it was mid-October. It's mid-October, not March. I, I, I carried the one. Strangely, out of these failed prophecies about Christ's return was birthed the Seventh-day Adventist religion, cult, In 1988, a man, Edgar Weisenhart, or Weisenant, wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. I imagine it was only a decent seller for about a year. In fact, he said it was going to be September, somewhere between September 11th and 13th, 1988. Then he did some recalculating. And he meant, what he meant was September of 1989. And then again, he said 1993. And then he redid his numbers again and came up with 1994. And then he remained quiet till he died in 2001. Jesus says, first of all, you don't have to do that. Why? Because Jesus said, you won't miss it. Like, so coming of the kingdom, not coming with signs and wonders, that's fine. But then he says to his disciples, are you worried about when I'm coming back? Let me help you. You won't be able to miss it. I will come like a lightning flash that lights up the sky from one end to the other and nobody misses those unless you're hunkered down in your basement or or you are taking a nap at the time, but you hear the thunder, you see the light, and you're like, oh, a storm is coming. He's like, that's how the Son of Man is coming back. No one will miss it. You don't need to hear, oh, look, here, look, there. That don't... if. If you're wondering, I haven't. If you're wondering if I've returned, then I haven't. You won't be able to miss it. But he says, even besides that, though, right now, listen, that coming is is coming, but first the Son of Man needs to suffer and be rejected by this generation. 
And so it's interesting. He starts with, you're going to go through times, through trials, through suffering, through losses, through deep, heartfelt losses, where you will wonder if it is all worth it, if it is all true, if it is all real. He says, and don't, don't let your sufferings be discouraging. Because remember, I suffered for you to bring this about. He starts and ends with suffering, that foundational reminder that the Son of Man first suffered for you. You worship a God who has scars from his suffering for you. Like that's not a, there's not a world religion that worships a God who would be broken on your behalf. Your God has scars from his suffering on your behalf. Do not let your suffering be a discouragement. But looking too intently heavenward is not the only way that we can ignore or cease to care about the kingdom of God or for Christ's return. He doesn't warn us only about stargazing. He warns us about navel-gazing. And he gives two familiar tales. Well, one's probably more familiar to most than the other, but maybe everyone here has heard of these two fellows from the Old Testament, Noah and Lot. Admittedly, we, we do more with Noah. Somehow Lot and his Lot never decorates our nurseries. But somehow we think the story of Destroying the entire world with water is good for our nurseries and our children to sleep near rather than God destroying one city with fire. Like, I'd, I'd like to see a border with Lot and his wife, you know, just kind of trailing. Maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I'm being a little. That might be too far. But remember Noah. Noah, we all know the story of Noah. Noah builds an ark. God brings animals to him. God's going to judge the world for its wickedness. It's interesting, Jesus talks about it in the day of Noah. In verse 25, 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Or think about Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew, living in a town called Sodom. And God sends angels to rescue him before he sends those angels back to destroy the town for its wickedness. And we're told again here, during Lot's days, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Notice in these lists, there's nothing innately wrong. Like, Jesus isn't talking about like the, the wickedness of these people or these towns. He's talking about the complacency, the apathy. Like that is alone a wickedness that we would live our lives so complacent, so focused on ourselves, so focused on these things around us, these things that are good, that are even necessary. I mean, it's not like he's saying, so stop eating and drinking. Like we sometimes the one part of this passage is twisted into, so see, that's why priests are celibate. They shouldn't 
be focused on marrying and being given in marriage. It's like, well, then they should be really skinny too, because they shouldn't be focused on eating and drinking anymore either. And so he's not saying these are bad things, but these are things that we get so preoccupied with. Our eating, our drinking, our marrying, our being given in marriage, our building, our selling, our buying, our planting, our lives, our little mundane lives. They preoccupy us so much that we forget that they are the tip of an everlasting iceberg. Like this stuff you're doing right now is the tip of your immortal soul's existence. And you would worry about what you're going to eat tomorrow. In a humorous way, my, one of my kids like barely finishes chewing the last bite of a meal and is asking for the rundown of tomorrow night's meal. Which is somewhat humorous. And if you're not a member of Hope of Christ, none of my kids are young enough for that to be a thing. <laughs> and it's still a thing for my kids who are all over 20 years old. And it's, uh, well, so what are we eating tomorrow? But we can do that, can't we? get so focused on these things. And, and Jesus says, listen, destruction is coming. As sure as it came to the people in Noah's time, as sure as it came to the people in Lot's time, it's coming. This apathy, this complacency. Be careful. How are you living your life right now? And one thing to note that's not in this, but in case you haven't read about Noah and Lot recently, they weren't stellar fellows. Like, they weren't awesome dudes who God was like, wow, those are some clean-cut young men. I could... I could do something with them. No. Uh, Shortly after the flood, Noah got so drunk he passed out naked in his tent. Lot was a miserable fellow. The only thing good in these guys was that God was merciful to them. God called them out of these situations. God saved them. Like you might look at Lot and say, the only thing Lot had going for him is his relationship with Abraham. Abraham, God loved. And because of his love for Abraham and Abraham's relationship to Lot, Lot is saved. Like that's one of those, that's another one of those like biblical theology things. Like you, we read that and we're like, oh, that's like foreshadowing. That's like the only reason I'm saved is because of my relationship with one whom God loves. But again, Jesus doesn't reference the abject wickedness. He just references distraction. Preoccupation with the stuff of this world. There's an entire worldview named after this. It's secular humanism. It's indifference or rejection of any religious considerations. Living your life like there is no need to acknowledge whether there is a God or not. Do you do that? I mean, obviously not today. 
I mean, no, not Sundays, but do Monday through Saturday reflect the same attitude toward God as Sunday does? Do you live your whole life just sort of assuming that it's a secular humanist world, that religion doesn't enter into it until Sunday morning? Peter writes about it. It's in our responsive reading. People are like, well, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything is going on the way it always has been. He's like, yeah, they're conveniently forgetting the flood. That's what he's saying there. Like, the, the world was deluged with water, remember? He says, and also, God is patient. He's not apathetic. He's not disconnected. He's patient. He doesn't want anyone to face judgment. He wants us to repent. But sometimes our navel-gazing can be more subtle, or at least it seems more subtle. It's subtle, though, in the way that, like, if you were at a subway station or a train station and decided that, you know, just to make sure, you know, you're not sure if the train's going in the right direction, so just to play it safe, you're just going to put one foot on the train and leave the other foot on the station so that that way, just in case it's not, you kind of hedge your bets that way. You know, you're good in both, but that doesn't, that, like, works for about two to five feet, depending on how flexible you are. And then that does not work very well for anyone. Jesus talks about this this subtle way of navel-gazing. He's like, look, man, if if you're on a roof and all your stuff's downstairs, man, don't go back and get it. That's, it is inconsequential. You do not need that. If you're out in the field, don't worry about what's back in your house. He says, look, remember Lot's wife. If you're not familiar, Lot's wife, as they were fleeing from Sodom, she turns back. There's, There's just something there that she longs for. She's not quite ready to give up. And it's her destruction. Jesus gives the summary statement. He says, whoever, in verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will actually lose it. Whoever would lose his life will actually keep it. Am I willing to just consider all of this stuff, just stuff, and just let it go? And be saved by Christ and His work. While the last verses aren't easy to nail down as far as their exact meaning, the the gist of what they're saying is still a warning. You know, it really doesn't matter how close I am to people close to Christ. Like, you are saved by one relationship alone. Your relationship to Christ. Like you will not, it will not help you that you're in a close relationship with someone who's close to Christ. You know, there'll be two laying in bed. One's going to be taken. One's going to be left. There'll be two grinding, the, just the communal 
friendship, the work that happens, the, the friendship that happens when you're working together, that bond, two will be grinding. One will be taken. One will be left. Proximity and closeness to followers of Christ doesn't save you. Proximity and closeness to Christ alone. This is why we we say sometimes at at Hope of Christ, uh, God has no grandchildren. We're all sons and daughters of God. Kids, if you think that because your parents are good Christians and they take you to church even though you despise it and wonder when the pastor's ever going to stop talking, and even he doesn't know the answer to that, that's like asking the Son of Man when he's going to come back. Even I don't know the times or the places. But it'll end eventually. Uh, If you think that just showing up at church because your parents are making you is going to save you, it's not. The kingdom of God is here. Christ has ushered it in. He has come. He has died for your sins. It is for you to repent and believe. It is for you to receive. Your parents can't receive it for you. You have to receive it. Lot's wife was not saved by her relationship to her husband. The disciples ask where, and Jesus gives sort of a macabre answer. Well, where the corpse is, that's where the vultures will gather. And it sounds like just such a mean answer. But is it mean? Is it mean if your house is burning down? to scream for your children to get out? Is it mean if they're so preoccupied with, I don't know, their tablets, their video game? Is it mean if you wrench that tablet out of their hand and just run out of the house? Is that mean? I remember we were, we had one of those George Washington Book of Manners books. Do you remember those? And there's one that talks like addresses children about like, now the proper way to talk to your parents. You know, especially if you're if they're having if they're have guests and such. And we were reading it one time, and Myra was appalled at this book because it suggested that one way to approach your parents was, "Pardon me, mother, but the house is on fire." <laughs> She's just like, what? Is, who does that? Who would do that? Like, that doesn't exist unless you, like, really don't care too much for your parents, which, I mean, that might be another thing. But, like, when Amy was teaching the kids to drive, and Amy always taught the kids to drive, like, I never was involved in that, and that's, like, good for everybody. But she would take them out, and she would tell them up front. She's like, now, listen. There will be times that I'm going to yell at you and you're going to be scared by how loud I can get how quickly. And it's not that I'm angry at you. It's just that I don't have time to say, oh, honey, you're a little close to the edge here and those mailboxes are approaching rapidly. If you continue on this course, 
It could be that we will have to replace several mailboxes and the front bumper. What do you think would be a healthier option? No, that's not... Stop! What? You're about to hit that mailbox. No, I wasn't. I'm telling you, you were. No, I wasn't. Well, you didn't now because you stopped when I yelled. Stop! Stop being so preoccupied with this stuff. Stop being so overwhelmed with your grief and your loss that you can't even hear Christ's words for you anymore. He loves you. He's for you. He's with you. He wants to save you. His kingdom is here and his kingdom is coming. All that you have to do is receive it. Repent, believe. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. The work is done. You have accomplished it. We thank you. God, forgive us for our complacency. For our apathy. For being so distracted by the stuff of this world. God, help us to feel your presence in our suffering and in our sorrow. Remind us of your scars for us. In Jesus' name, amen.